0: Now turn your attention to our passage. We're going to be back in the book of James, and we're just going to look at two verses. If you don't have a Bible, the whole passage is right there in the bulletin. And if you're visiting, welcome again. Very glad that you're here. And, uh, and I said this at the beginning, but I'll say this again. We don't have a lot of emphasis Sundays. I mean, Easter and Advent are, are that in, in certain ways. That's not... Commanded in Scripture, those are Emphasis Sundays, but uh, this is one, and, and rather than just do what some churches do of, of, a, of a Sanctity of Life Sunday, really the, the emphasis, and churches around the world are doing this, is on connecting the dots between the gospel and adoption. And because I knew that we were planning to do this, I, I skipped over this little passage this past fall when we were studying through the whole book of James and so this is where I'm going to redeem myself, come back to it and I want to look at these two verses. So James chapter 1 beginning verse 26. On January 10th, so a little bit less than two weeks ago, a video was posted on YouTube called Why I Hate Religion but Love Jesus. And I checked it this morning that we're not even at the two week mark And it had over 16 million views. Mmm. I heard some mm. (laughs) mmm. Wow. But now, when you see those, I mean, a a lot of stuff goes viral and it gets passed around and all that. But not only has this been viewed so many times, but there's even been uh, videos by people responding to it, why they liked it, what they wanted to push back on or, or, or challenge in it. One of the challenges was, hey, you're not really defining what you mean by religion. And you can look online and see how people have hashed this out. But the main thing to think about is, in less than two weeks, over 16 million people looked at this. That should tell you something. That, that this hit on something. Uh, that there are lots of people who would say, I want Jesus And I like the things that Jesus likes. And I I want to critique the things that He critiques. But I do not want religion. Now, these two verses, on the one hand, are going to give you fuel to do that. Uh, They're going to say, there is a religion that James is actually going to call worthless. And he's going to just very clearly say, this is not the route to go. This is a religion where you're kidding yourself. However... Here's where we get stretched. The very next verse, James is going to say, there is a religion that God, this is God. Not us, but God, who is utterly pure, who can see through all mischief. There's a religion that God looks at and He says, to me, that is clean. And I accept it. Uh, We want to distance ourselves from the first, but in distancing ourselves from that religion, let's pause. Are we going to embrace the religion that James says God looks at and He likes it? Because if so, all of us will be stretched. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue... But deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, If it's the case that there's a religion that we can practice, and as we're practicing it, we're deceiving ourselves, and you consider it to be worthless, then we need you to pull us away from it and disenchant us with it. But if there's a religion that you accept and you view as pure and good, and you commend it, then we need to hear, and embrace it. And we cannot make those changes in ourselves. We need you to feed us and enable us to hear and enable us to heed. So please be near us and do that now. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, I heard a comedian not long ago say that he's had so many people say to him, you know, I'm not a religious person but I'm spiritual, he said that he now has a standard answer. He, he will then in response say, well, I'm not an honest person, but you're interesting. <laughs> I'm not condoning that from the pulpit. But, uh, but just, just to say, when you have a comedian saying, I now have a standard line when I encounter that, that phrase, again, it's, it's, it's just another little diagnostic to say, uh, this is something that we bump into over and over, is that even, not, not just quote-unquote secular people or not just straight-up atheists, but people who would say, no, I want spirituality, whether it's with Jesus or another, another form of it. Uh, I want spiritual activity. I want a spiritual life. I just don't want religion. That should tell you something, that religion almost right out of the gates has negative connotations with us. Just uh, Friday, if you got your Greenville Journal, what was on the cover? You know, they had an eye to the elections yesterday. And on the cover, it was, it was, it was sort of a mock quote saying that I, as a candidate, I don't need religious endorsements. And what is that saying? Religion is a negative. Um, I, I thought in this sermon about going into some of the historic reasons about why we're like that. Um, And the more I thought about it, I thought, that is going to make this sermon into a lecture. And I don't want to go lecture on you. Let me just say this. If it interests you, why, really, in a way that's unique in history, are we so... Even if we like spirituality, does the word religion have such negative connotations? If you want to read a grown-up book about that, there's a book that came out in the late 90s by an author named Westfall... W-E-S-T-P-H-A-L. And the title is Suspicion and Faith. And there's three guys that he primarily looks at in this book, in Suspicion and Faith. is Karl Marx, and Sigmund Freud, and Friedrich Nietzsche. All intellectuals in different ways. And the upshot is that whether you have ever read a paragraph that those guys wrote, much less a whole book, through their cultural emphasis, something that just got in the water supply is that religion is a joke. That religion is something by which people serve their own interests. It's a way by which the haves control and manipulate the have-nots. And Nietzsche's big thing, and this one is still very much in the water supply, is that at the end of the day, when you make a religious claim... When you say your religion's right and another religion is wrong, what that is is a power grab. You're propping up you and your people and your interests at the expense of everybody else. Now, whether you've ever read those authors, that is in the water. And that's why this passage, just these little two verses, it stretches us. Because on the one hand it says, yeah, there is a religiosity that we've got to critique. And this didn't start with James. It didn't even, if I may say this, start with Jesus. The prophets are replete with this critique. But then in the very next verse, it says what? There is a religion that God likes, and it is one that... The first kind comes naturally to all cultures. The religion by which I indulge myself. But the other kind of religion does not come naturally. It's something that must happen supernaturally, which is what religion is supposed to be, by the way. So let's look at this. First off, what's the worthless religion, verse 26? And then what's the the pure, the undefiled religion in verse 27? Alright, first, verse 26, how does it start? It says this if anyone thinks excuse me, if anyone thinks he is religious and he does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless." Now, what is that saying? It's saying what we've already said. Religion is a great mechanism for people who are deceiving themselves. If you, you know, as the saying goes, if you were deceived, would you know it? No. When people are deceived, sometimes their religion is an expression of it. It's a mechanism for doing it. Now, This whole thing of, if you're deceived, do you know it? Wow, okay, if I was deceived, I wouldn't know it. So how do I know if I'm one of these people who's using religion as a form of deceiving myself in some way, indulging myself? And James gives a little indicator light. And what's the indicator light? He says, one way that you'll know it is if you've got somebody who's religious, they do these religious practices, and they can't bridle their tongue. Now, out of all the different ethical issues... You know, all, all the different behaviors. Why would he isolate that one and say, that's how you spot it? And a couple of chapters later, he tells us. He says this. In fact, he brings up this thing of a bridle or a bit again. He says, now think about it. A horse, a war horse, is bigger than a man, stronger than a man, faster than a man, fiercer than a man. But if you train it and you put bit and bridle there, a smaller man can move this warhorse. If you've got a big ship and you've got this small part called the rudder, because of that rudder, a man can direct that big ship where it needs to go. And then James says this, the tongue is the rudder of the life. But our problem is that the tongue, according to James, is set on fire by hell. Now when he writes that, in some ways he's unpacking something that his Lord said. Here's what Jesus said. It's out of the overflow of the heart. It's out of the abundance of the heart that what happens? The mouth speaks. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So here's what James is saying. If you've got someone who cannot control what he or she says, their religion is worthless. Why is that such an effective indicator? Because here's what we know from Jesus. If religion hasn't changed the talk... Religion hasn't touched the heart, and the heart is the real us, if I may put it that way. Uh, that video that I was talking about, you know, it's several minutes long. It's a guy, kind of a rap, kind of a poem, uh, which I'd like to rap for you now in its entirety. <laughs> I did get a hoodie this past week, though, so maybe i <laughs> But it's a Carhartt hoodie, which kind of counterbalances the word hoodie. But back to the sermon. Verse 3 of this, uh, of this, of this poem touches on this. Now, again, there, would be, there are parts of this poem that people have critiqued, pushed back on. And, uh, and, by, and the guy that did this video, his response to some of those has been very good, very charitable, and really has put himself in the posture of being teachable, which is commendable. But here's a part where he sounds a lot like Jesus, especially in Matthew 23. Here's here's a verse. Religion might preach grace. Okay, saying the right thing. Religion might preach grace, but another thing they practice tend to ridicule God's people. They did it to John the Baptist. They can't fix their problems, and so they just mask it. Not realizing religion's like spraying perfume on a casket. See, the problem with religion is it never gets to the core. It's just behavior modification, like a long list of chores. Like, let's dress up the outside, make look nice and neat. But it's funny, that's what they used to do to mummies while the corpse rots underneath. That sounds like Jesus in Matthew 23. When interestingly, He is speaking to very, very religious people, to the Pharisees. And He says, you know what, you're like whitewashed tombs. Clean, spiffy, clean edges, and inside is rot and death. That is your religiosity. That is what James is talking about in verse 26. Now, before we go further, you know, it's kind of easy to just picture sort of a, a, either someone in your life or maybe even someone from a movie or a book that's like the religious person who secretly got like some, you know, whatever gambling ring they're running or, you know, what, just the kind of classic hypocrite and go, yeah, yeah, that's who verse 26 is. But can we identify with that person? Or will we start off and say, well, obviously that's not me and sit in judgment of it? Can can we pause before we go to verse 27 and ask ourselves, do you find if you are a person, and we won't say I'm a religious person usually, but if you're someone who has a lot of spiritual activities, probably Christian ones if you're here, that you like a great Bible study and you like a good Christian book, And maybe even you kind of hover over some Christian blogs that that point out some good stuff. And uh, you like when churches seem to be alive and doing well. And you're involved in these things. And maybe you're in a a small group with some other other spiritual people. But the gossip will not stop. Uh, The speaking in anger will not stop. The using God's name as your own personal little exclamation point at the end will not stop. And and I would say this to you, you know, you may be here this morning and you may feel at some level kind of spiritually stuck. And I'll tell you, as a minister, I have felt that before. Where just I feel like I'm just stuck. It's not that I'm chucking my beliefs. It's just I feel like I'm not flourishing. I'm not growing. I cannot unstick you any more than I can unstick me. God has to unstick us. But I would give you a challenge. Maybe something that could be an exercise in you getting unstuck would would be for, for you or I to go to someone with whom we're really close, like a really close friend or a sibling or a spouse, and say to that person, for all my spiritual activity... Do you perceive that it changes the way I talk to you? Because then we might be able more to identify with verse 26. That maybe this is not a cartoon character. Maybe I am the religious person, and my Bible studies, and my church attendance, and my devotional life, and the, the neat Christian book that I'm excited about is a way for me to feel better about the fact that I'm going to try to set the terms, and I don't have to change. Because the tongue gives us away. And James diagnoses that kind of religion as worthless. Now, then there's verse 27. And what does verse 27 say? Um, it says that there is a religion that God, in all His purity, again, I, I, I feel like I've just got to slow us down for a second, even when we say the word God, because we use that word a lot. This is the one whom the angels, who've never sinned, have to cover their eyes when they're in His presence. God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's a religion done by sinners, faulty people, and that when they do it, He looks on it as pure and as undefiled. Now that should catch our attention. What characterizes this kind of religion? And it's called religion. Two things. I'm going to tell you on the front end, I'm going to almost exclusively focus on the first one. But it's a religion that visits, and it's a religion that is unspotted by the world. It's involved in the world. It has to be. But it's untainted, unspotted by the world. But let's look at this first one. James says this religion, it visits widows and orphans in their distress. All right, now, I want to be true to my word and not go lecture on you. But can I tell you how great this Greek verb is? This is like the greatest verb. And it is absolutely brilliant what James does here to use this particular verb to set us up for the religion that God uh, embraces or, or commends. It's the verb visit. Now, you can just kind of look at that and go, okay, yeah, like, you know, go to the nursing home, uh, go to the orphanage, go to the sick person, go, go to the homeless shelter and visit. That's not, strictly speaking, how the Bible uses this, this verb. Here's what this verb looks like. It's like James used one verb to sum up the history of redemption. When, when God's people were in this wretched slavery in Egypt, we're accustomed to that story. And if you've seen the Cecil B. DeMille movie, you might think, "Ah, oh, it may not be too bad. The rest of their history, the Israelites refer back to it is it was an iron, iron smelting furnace. Our lives were bitter. It crushed us. Formative for their identity. When God comes to Moses and says, You're going to lead my people out of this slavery. Moses says, I, 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 don't, I, I don't want to. I can't do it. And God says, I'm going to be with you. Moses says, I can't do it. I can't talk. And he says, I'll let your brother Aaron talk for you. And yes, you are. And so one of the very first things that Aaron says for Moses on behalf Uh, Aaron says, on Moses' behalf, from the Lord to the Israelites, is that God is going to rescue you. And it says at the end of Exodus chapter 4, that when the Israelites heard that, and they heard that God had visited them in their affliction, that they rejoiced and they worshipped God and nobody was free yet. They just knew that if God—and they didn't know beans about God, even compared to what we know about God—but they knew if God visits, our entire lives will change. If He visits, and He does, and then you go to the New Testament, and this uh, this man named Zechariah, John the Baptist' daddy, before he's John the Baptist' daddy, is told, "You're going to be a daddy," and he tells this angel, "I'm too old to be a daddy." Not the right response when an angel tells you that you're going to be a daddy. Uh, I'm too too old to be a daddy. And this angel says, you know what? I stand before God. I minister in His name. Because you have doubted this word, you'll be struck dumb. You won't be able to talk until the birth of your son. John the Baptist, as a baby, is born. Everyone's asking, what's the baby's name? They go to to Zechariah, his daddy. He can't, can't talk, so he writes on a tablet, his name is John. And his speech is restored. And you know what's the first thing he says? God has visited His people. When Jesus comes, uh, in Luke chapter 7 or 8, He's he's walking through a town and He comes upon a funeral procession and it's the son of a widow. And so, here's what that means. She's a widow, so her life has already been sad, but her son, that's her only stability. Like, that would be her breadwinner. Life then is not like life now. And he has died. So probably she is destitute unless she has some benevolent relative. So this funeral procession is going by, and the mother is weeping. And Jesus walks up to what we would call the coffin and touches it, which, by the way, was prohibited in the law of God, unless you're God. He walks up and touches it, and He raises the young man from the dead in a public setting. And all these eyewitnesses flip out. And one of the things they scream is what? God has visited His people. It is one of the strongest verbs for when God comes to people who cannot fix their own sin, who cannot fix their own physical suffering... And he bursts in and is a rescuer. That's visiting from God. Did Jesus ever use this word? And only in one talk did he ever, that, that we have in the Bible did he use this same Greek verb. It's in Matthew 25. It's toward the end of his ministry. And he uses it twice. He says, At the end on the day of judgment, that to those on the right of the Son of Man... His people, His sheep, He looks at them and says, Well done. Enter into my joy. Because when I was sick and I was in prison, you visited me. And the people say, When did we visit you? When did we see you sick? When did we see you naked? And He says, "Ah, Whenever you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. Enter in. And thus begins their bliss so those on his left his enemies he says when i was sick and when i was in prison you did not visit me and that is one of the criteria of their judgment now can we take and there are way more usages than that but can we just take those and tie them together and come up with a principle that hooks into this passage what is the principle People who strongly sense, and I'm not just going to say strongly sense, people who know in their bones that God visited them become visitors of the people God loves. People who know that they were visited by God become visitors of the people God loves. This past week, Two of my uh, longtime friends in front of me, one on the phone and one in my presence, gave their testimony. And it's funny, I know their testimony. When I say testimony, I mean just recounting God's work in their life. And the first one was on a Tuesday, it was a dear friend of mine. And we were at a meeting, and people were just sort of going around introducing themselves and talking about what they were doing there. And he began recounting what God had done in his life. And he started talking about in high school when he was not seeking God. And God sought him. And now, this guy is a pastor. He talks about Jesus all the time. He talks about God all the time. And he talks about Him well. But even as he recounted what happened, which is old information to him, his tears came. Because he was recounting, when I was not searching for him, he searched me out and he saved me. He forgave all my sins and he changed my whole life. And what he was saying was what the Bible calls, he visited me. My other friend that I was on the phone with just a few days ago, he was talking about that this month marks, as far as he can remember, doesn't know the exact date, but he thinks that January of 2012 marks 30 years ago that God worked in his life. And it was just a little less than a year after that that, as far as I know, that that I became a Christian. And through that process, we became friends and have been friends ever since. And as we're on the phone together, a phrase that is a recurring phrase in our conversations on the phone is, you know what, even for all the ways that we mishandled things in high school, I know... Hard to believe. But for all the ways that we mishandled our newfound faith, for all the ways that we swung to extremes and we overstated this and we underdid that and we blew it with our family and we blew it with our peers, for all the ways that we mishandled it, it is not nostalgia. It is the truth that God came near. And that is what Scripture calls God visiting. And and this is where I want us to connect the dots, which Dan and Jason do so effectively about adoptions, is not to just send us out the door, beating about the head and shoulders to say, well, who's going to care about the widow? You've got this great life. What about the widow? You've got this great life. You've got this nuclear family. What about the orphan? You have means. What about the poor? Can't we do better than that? Let's close in prayer. That has no power to motivate you over the long haul. That's moralism, and it's guilt trip, and it's crummy. So the question I want to ask us as we start coming in for a landing here is this. Have you been visited by God? Not did you seek Him out and begin a conversation, but have you been visited by God? Because something that might be very frightening to do, but it might be the beginning of your liberation, is to get on your knees today and to say, I don't know. And the fact that I don't know concerns me. And I have no power and no bargaining chips to make you visit me, but would you visit me? And you know what? That is a posture that God loves. That is the posture that God loves. He loves it so much that He became man and He came to earth to bear the wrath that we deserve so that one day God fully, face to face, might visit with us and us with Him. It is the gospel itself. If that grabs you supernaturally, not overnight, and it requires teaching and encouragement, Something should be going on inside of us, and it's what? It's to identify with the helpless. If I have a nuclear family, and I have means, and I'm married, and I, in other words, if I'm none of those categories, why should I identify them but with them? Because it is, it is a description of our natural spiritual state. All of us. But if you're married, and you have means, and you're healthy, and you're doing well, understand that you also, and the rest of us, showed up spiritually alone, and dead, and destitute. We did have a father, the devil, and we were children of wrath. And if that, if that has changed, it's because God visited, which changed all of that. But if that grabs you, it enables us to look at people who may not be someone that we would naturally gravitate toward, and to relate. Now, there's a million avenues of application, but here's what I want to say. There are booths outside. There are resources online. There are great guys you can talk to. There are parents who have adopted in this congregation. There are people who are very much getting their hands on manifestations of poverty and illiteracy in Greenville that you can talk to. But here's the problem. If you're a perfectionist, this may shut you down. Because there's so much to do and there's so many avenues to do it that you're going to wait till you figure out the perfect one to do and then you'll never do anything. How do I know this? Because I've done it. And my exhortation to you would be, cry out to God, lead me, show me how to do this and then do something. When I had finally reached my perfectionist wall, if there is such a thing, uh, when I lived in Nashville, and I became so convicted of this that, you know what? It's like you're just looking for this perfect way to do it, and you're not doing anything. I finally called a medical, uh, kind of uh, medical mission to poor in Nashville, and just called them and said, look, my name is Brian Habig, and I'm a perfectionist. I didn't say that. I, my name is Brian Havig, and look, I, I need to do something there. Would you just let... I'll do anything. I don't know what it... It may be that I'm working hands-on with something that is way over my pay grade, or I may clean your bathrooms, but I need to do something. And they put me to work. But let's not spin our wheels. If the God who says, from the beginning, I love the widow, I love the orphan... I love the sojourner. I love the alien. I love the poor. And I want you to love them too, that in the gospel has given us the resources to go and say, I don't know what I'm doing and I don't know what you're going through, but let's figure something out. And not to go in a top-down way, because trust me, we will be the beneficiaries. Let me end with this too. Last week I preached on the Great Commission, the Great Commission to the church to go out there And make disciples. And I want to end with a story. Uh, Charles Spurgeon is quoted on the back of your bulletin. Um, He's a Baptist pastor in London. And he's kind of a guy that everybody claims. Charles Spurgeon, I think this happened on a train station in London. I think it was a train station. He uh, was in a public space and this man accosted Charles Spurgeon and just lit into him about his beliefs. And it was probably same old song and dance, you know, Christians are hypocrites, Christians don't do this, Christians don't do that. And Charles Spurgeon, who was not a shrinking violet, stopped the guy and and had a powerful mind, began to just go through this litany of, let's think about the societal evils right now in London, and let's think about who is doing the real boots on the ground, hands-on ministry. As he went through this list, it was Christian after Christian after Christian after Christian after Christian after Christian. Christian. And hey, don't forget about William Wilberforce, who, humanly speaking, shut down the British slave trade. And at the end of just reading this guy, hopefully in a good way, the riot act, he ended by saying this, The God who answers by orphanages, let him be God. Do you know what he was paraphrasing? He was paraphrasing what the prophet Elijah said to the false prophets of Baal. Let's put our stuff on the, on the altar. And the God who answers by fire, by consuming it, he's God. But Charles Spurgeon said, the God who answers in London by orphanages, that's God. And in closing, what does that tell us? The city of Greenville does not care about our hymns. The city of Greenville, for the most part, does not care about the finer points of our community groups. Although I hope they will always be welcome. They care, and we have street cred, about... They care when they see us love Greenville in tangible ways. We should do this because this is what was done to us, but... An added perk, if we are to have credibility in the downtown and the city of Greenville, the gospel and visiting widows and orphans in their distress should be linked. It is not an an unnatural link. It makes all the sense in the world. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, none of us really can claim to be wise or good at this. That maybe if you have given us some experience and understanding in how to love someone who has lost a spouse, we don't know a great deal about homelessness. Or maybe if we've had some experience with homelessness that we don't know a great deal about adoption or orphanages. And just the realities of poverty that are so much more complex than any of our understanding. So we come to you as your children and say, we're not good at it. And you know we're not good at it. But it's always been sinners working on these things. So have mercy on us. Don't let us spin our wheels looking for the perfect avenue and then never do anything. Would you direct us to the widow, the widower, the orphan, the alien, the impoverished, the illiterate man, woman, child who needs love. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.